When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Web3 Breakdowns. Web3 Breakdowns is a series of conversations exploring innovation in the decentralized internet. Each episode, we will focus on a different topic. We will cover NFT projects, crypto assets, blockchain-based protocols, and businesses being built with Web3 architecture. We will talk to founders, artists, investors, and influencers to understand this emerging ecosystem. Come join us down the rabbit hole. To find more episodes, transcripts, and a library of content to continue your learning, visit joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Eric Golden, and my guest today is Jack Newrider. Jack is a senior research analyst at Fidelity Digital Assets, where he helps institutions make sense of the crypto ecosystem. Our conversation centers on three main themes, Bitcoin, Ethereum, and the institutional view on crypto. We start by talking about where we are in the Bitcoin cycle. We then cover the taproot upgrade, the XRP court case, and how institutions think about allocating the crypto. Please enjoy my conversation with Jack Newrider. Jack, thank you for joining me today. After reading your papers, following your quarterly write-ups, and more recently, you've been talking about the Bitcoin cycle, how it looks like other past cycles, but we're obviously at a very unique time on the regulatory front with both the potential approval of ETFs, with SEC cases against exchanges, and a very interesting macro backdrop. So I thought a fun place to start would be, how are you feeling about where Bitcoin is? How does this play into your views of cycles and where Bitcoin may be going? Yeah, thanks for having me on, Eric. Happy to be here. I think everybody in the crypto space is pretty familiar with this idea of Bitcoin. It's having schedule, right? Every four years, its issuance rate gets cut in half. And the price of Bitcoin has moved in these roughly four-year cycles, 6 to 12, 18 months after the halving. We've seen these large run-ups in price eventually euphoria and speculation, and then pretty extreme, like 75-85% drawdowns. And you can kind of draw a similar path through this last cycle. And if you look at the all-time high in November of 2021, you had a one-year drawdown that was about 75% peak to trough, 70,000 just under, down to 15,000 at the bottom in November of 2022. That's almost identical to the prior two drawdowns. And like I think of the past two cycles and this cycle as being when Bitcoin was of any substantial size of liquidity and people following it, right? You could go to a cycle prior, which looked a little bit different, but really this is the fourth or fifth cycle, but it's really like the third meaningful cycle. And if we look at it, it looks very similar to prior one-year drawdowns. Now we're in this November of 2022 when we bottomed through today, you're up 100% off the bottom, we're at around 30,000, give or take, as we're talking. But you're still down 50% from the all-time high because of, of course, drawdown math. 
you have to go back up 300% to get back to where you came from. That's the painful part of volatility on the way down. We've seen like kind of a similar playbook to the 2018, 2019 period of time where you just kind of chop around with a little bit of upward bias. And at the moment, I think everybody is asking, is this the same cycle playing out? We know history doesn't repeat, but it can rhyme and it can give us a base case scenario or framework to think about the future. And if this time is the same, again, that's a big assumption, but if it is the same, then in theory, you have a halving next year and maybe by mid or end of next year, that's when you would see your retests of old all-time highs. I think the things that give me pause here is like you've never had positive real interest rates on like a forward looking basis, at least the way that the bond market is pricing it in as like this potential macro headwind and just like ambiguity on whether the Fed's gone too far or not far enough baked into the cake that's like going to impact Bitcoin and digital assets moving forward. So I think if you look at the price data and the on-chain data, I'm sure we'll talk about some of that it all looks reminiscent of prior cycles. And like 15,000 was your bottom. This year is going to continue to sort of consolidate and be boring with no narratives and then head into next year and get more constructive. And maybe that's your base case. But then you just have this ominous backdrop of what's going on in the macro. You changed interest rates dramatically, right? The rate of change on the 10-year. Today, we're at year-to-date highs and we're bumping up against last fall's highs. And what does that mean for Bitcoin if it's an alternative store of value and posing itself like digital gold? So let's start with the price and then we'll go to on-chain. On the price moves, looking at prior cycles, the happenings is next year. How has it let up? Was there a catalyst or did the narrative just become because the supply for miners drops in half that suddenly there's be less emission of Bitcoin, so therefore lower supply, equal demand, higher price? It's a good question. I think People that subscribe to the fact that the halving is the reason why these price runs have happened in a cyclical fashion would say that there is less Bitcoin issued and that as a result, if miners are some proportion of those new Bitcoin are being sold, then there's going to be an imbalance of supply versus demand. Simple Econ 101. If demand stays constant and supply is reduced, then the offsetting factor would be price rising. But I think over time, it's fair to call out the fact that if you go from a, let's just say, 50% inflation rate to a 25% inflation rate, that's a huge change. But once you get down to these levels where like Bitcoin, I think it's annual issuance rate right now is like 1.8%, give or take, and it's going to get cut in half in 2024, but it's going from 2% to 1%, right? So the marginal changes are a lot smaller. And so I think you could craft an argument around the fact that maybe it's a little more narrative this time around than in terms of actual material impact to miners' bottom lines and the net sell pressure that can be changed versus in the early days, if you did go from double digit, if you cut 10 plus percent of an inflation rate of an asset off, like ETH kind of did, you have these impacts that probably end up showing up. There's another argument to be made too, which is just the fact that there's been like uncanny timing of the fact that Bitcoin was born out of the financial crisis you've tended to see central bank balance sheet expansion and liquidity injections from monetary and fiscal policy authorities at the same time and in the same sort of cyclical fashion that Bitcoin's inflation schedule operates on, which I don't think we could attribute to like Satoshi Nakamoto knowing that ahead of time. I think that's more so just spurious correlation that has happened to exist. And maybe it continues this time, right? Maybe we 
head into a slowdown at the end of the year and there's liquidity added and completely hypothetical here. But maybe next year you do get central bank balance sheet expansion because maybe something breaks or whatever. The correlation continues on into the future. But there's arguments on both sides that like the having is materially doing something or it's just a narrative or there are exogenous variables that have happened to line up with it. No, that makes a lot of sense. And then in your reports, which I think are great and people should check them out, you do a lot of on-chain data analysis. And what are you seeing on on-chain when it comes to people holding or selling or wallet checking? We can break like Bitcoin and Ethereum because I think structurally they have different core trade-offs and drivers. And maybe you agree or disagree with this, but like we think of Bitcoin as making explicit trade-offs towards security and decentralization. And ultimately, that comes at the cost of scalability, complexity, right? There are no smart contracts really on Bitcoin, right? You can't do complex things. I can send you value and then I can have assurances that I won't be debased because there are only 21 million and it's very decentralized. So it's hard to change those rules. But those, of course, come at that trade-off of complexity. We can only do so many things with Bitcoin. But some would argue that that's the feature, not the bug inherent in Bitcoin's design. But with all that being said, It's trying to be a monetary asset first and foremost. And arguably, we like to go back to like thinking of the block size wars as being a pivotal moment of, is this peer-to-peer electronic cash the way that the first sentence in the white paper says it is? Or is it about 21 million Bitcoin and decentralization? Ultimately, if we're going to draw the market cap growth forward from the hard fork where you got Bitcoin cash, which was the idea of peer-to-peer payments and focusing on scalability and the cost of transactions, store value won out as the trade-off that the community wants to make is don't change, be as decentralized as possible, and then in theory, scale in layers. But all of that being said, what are the key KPIs that matter to a monetary asset that's trying to be like an alternative store of value digital gold? I would think it's people accumulating that asset and wanting to hold on to it. And so when we look on chain, do we see wallets accumulating and holding? Well, if we look at accumulation addresses, which are addresses that have two or more inputs and zero historical outputs, those are breaking new all-time highs. There's like a million plus addresses that have that type of activity or behavior. If we look at the liquid versus illiquid supply, so technically any Bitcoin is a liquid Bitcoin because... If you have access to the private keys, you can move it at any time. But when Bitcoin sits there and is dormant, it's not moving. It's not having a marginal impact on prices at the moment. And 70% of Bitcoin supply is what we would call illiquid, hasn't moved in the past 365 days or more. That's an all-time high. And we do tend to see cyclical behavior there as well, which is profit-taking and Bitcoin moving when the price rises and accumulation and less liquidity of Bitcoin on-chain during drawdowns. And we're seeing that same exact behavior, almost even more extreme, where 70% of Bitcoin supply, just under, I think at the moment, hasn't moved in the past year. That's something you would want to see. I go back to like economic theory and think of Gresham's law, which is technically, I believe, between two commodity monies, we would be technically comparing to like a fiat currency as the alternative. But there is a group of accumulators of Bitcoin that appear on-chain to be exhibiting Gresham's Law type behavior where they're accumulating what they view as a better monetary asset in Bitcoin, buying it, putting it in an address, holding it and not moving it, and then using the fiat money, which they view as a worse version of money in theory. Again, you could argue that is the behavior we would want to see on Bitcoin. And then if we flip to Ethereum, 
we think of Ethereum as being a technology platform first. And so, sure, there are, of course, elements of security and decentralization involved in Ethereum. Don't get me wrong. But there are also trade-offs that are made. The decentralization one is more of the obvious one, which is running your own node for Ethereum is more expensive. And a lot of people do it on third-party hosting services versus Bitcoin. You can do it on a Raspberry Pi for like $100. And everybody runs one consensus version because it's not a complex code. With Ethereum, there are trade-offs made, but then you get all of this added functionality and developers can build cool applications on top of it that if we integrate meaningful assets on these chains someday, then you could have a lot of really cool things happen on top of the network. So you think of Ethereum, especially after proof of stake, as being a yield-bearing asset whose value or tokenomics is derived as a result of useful applications that people want to use and are willing to pay fees in order to use. And those fees trickle down as value accrual for somebody that chooses to stake their ETH or even just holding ETH because a portion of those fees are burned as like a share buyback. Continue to see evidence that although there's not necessarily tons of new entrants in this bear market, there's a lot of activity on the chain such that supply is deflationary and that there's a real positive yield to ETH stakers, 5%, give or take, depending on how you stake or what protocol you use to help you stake. But both networks doing different things, Bitcoin as a monetary asset and Ethereum as a technology-like platform appear to like have on-chain metrics that there are still users that are using them for their core value proposition. I agree with most of the framework. I think that in a paradoxical way, they need each other. I'm more of a purist that I like Bitcoin being simple and slow because it represents the most simple version of it. And that if anything like Ethereum or another asset class goes too far, they can always look back to the, truly the puns probably more than intended, the gold standard. So if Bitcoin is the gold standard of how a monetary asset can be created in its most simplest form, if someone goes too far astray or it gets too centralized or there isn't enough security, then you know that you always have this base version. Which brings me to a recent piece building on Bitcoin. This has always been an area that was odd for me. There's two things I want to dig into. Let's start with the first. The first is this notion that running a Bitcoin node is easier and cost less than Ethereum. One of the interviews we did was with a Bitcoin mining company. What I came to realize is, like everything in capitalism, when there's money involved, there's scaling of resources. So yes, my sister could just buy a Raspberry Pi and run the node, that'd be great, but that most of the mining pools end up being consolidated into large power bases. Now, I'm not saying it's a good or a bad thing. I'm just wondering to dive into that argument of Ethereum is proof of stake, big money can buy bigger space, and it's harder. How does that compare truly to Bitcoin's decentralization? The one thing there that I think you're getting at is if we do delineate proof of stake and proof of work into two different buckets, I think it's kind of important, right? Because Ethereum, I'm not saying it's good or bad. That's actually not the argument that I don't think we ever make. It's just they're fundamentally different. And under proof of stake, it's explicit. Vitalik owns more tokens than me. He therefore has more governance and power over that network. And that's how a lot of systems operate. I think some would argue that within Bitcoin, the purpose of using proof of work in the first place was to abstract away the correlation between wealth and power. And you could say, well, couldn't you just buy a bunch of ASICs? There's an alternative form of wealth, which is the ability to harness energy units, and then you gain governance over the network. But 
A, they're two different things, right? The actual energy supply and the token wealth are two different currencies in theory. And the other is there is still a separation of powers inherent in Bitcoin, which is you have a number of thousands of individual node operators that have governance rights themselves that actually do operate these nodes and can run them themselves because the code is incredibly simple that are able to counterbalance or have a balance of powers against these mining entities. And if we go back to the block size wars, that would be the example of nodes being able to balance the powers that miners have. Whereas under Ethereum, it's validators. You put the two pieces together, basically. The node operators are themselves the stakers and validators on that network. And so you combine the powers into one. And again, it's not to say good or bad. They're just structurally different in my view. But I don't know if you have pushback on that. I was going to say, you already got me on the whole, when people say, well, you could just buy power on Ethereum, but on it's all proof of work. And I don't see much difference between buying energy computers. And I think about just the consolidation of power over time. I think that my view is a bit more removed that Anytime I've seen industries and economic systems get created, that power and centralization and scale, it's just it's a natural form of progress that I'm going to run a node and then I'm going to run a bunch of nodes that the block size wars happen today. I don't know if you would get the same result back to your point about where we are in the cycle that people became more sophisticated. Companies went public and raised capital to have a lot of mining capability on the network. And so to me, it's beautiful to think that it could remain decentralized, but this is one of the trade-offs we were talking about before we got started, that there's this interesting tension between the desire for the purity of a less centralized, less corrupt system, which I am enamored with, and then the ability to scale to the whole world and have everyone use it. And in the paper, Building on Bitcoin, yeah, this idea of like, oh, well, we want more than seven transactions per second. Well, the minute you start to go down that path, when people start to get efficiencies out of the system, you're going to have to give something up. It is a zero sum to me. So I guess, how do you think about the ability to scale Bitcoin relative to Ethereum agreed has made trade-offs and has gone down a specific path? But Bitcoin, the Lightning Network, some of the stuff that you've written about, their attempts to go in the same direction, but try to remain true to some of the core tenants. Yeah, I mean, I would argue in large part, most of Bitcoin's scaling technology, which it's mostly been just everybody talking about the Lightning Network, has been around simply making peer-to-peer payments cheaper. Okay, does Lightning end up doing that? It can. I mean, we could point to a number of issues, issues around liquidity fragmentation because it's a peer-to-peer network where these channels have to be pre-funded. There are issues with the fact that If you want to truly use it in a peer-to-peer fashion, then you should be running your own node and cussing your own Lightning assets. But that's not how most people interact with the Lightning Network, right? They use a custodial solution. And so then, okay, we could scale any decentralized asset with intermediaries that we're trusting. There is this element of trust has been added in a lot of the way that people are interacting with the Lightning Network. But I kind of think of it as it's separate because all it's trying to do is largely peer-to-peer payments. And I'm not trying to belittle that. But what Ethereum or any smart contract platform is trying to do is like structurally different with DeFi and NFTs and all of these different applications. So I almost just think, I don't know, they're like kind of different buckets. 
What was your view on when they added the ordinals onto Bitcoin after the Taproot upgrade, I believe? There was this ability to start to do more. And I found it really interesting because to me, I bought Bitcoin and I hold it and I put it away and it's there just in case the world goes to bananas. On the other side, Ethereum, I bought NFTs. You can do DeFi. There's so many things I could do with it. It felt more like an actual currency that I was using to do things. And when ordinals happened, there was just such a strong visual reaction against it. It was clogging. It was bad. But I'm like, I thought the whole point was you wanted the network to be used, but maybe you don't. It's always like this. Too many people are using Bitcoin and then everybody complains like, oh, transaction fees are too high and there's no scalability. And then when nobody uses Bitcoin, everybody talks about like, oh, transaction fees, there's none. Minor sustainability into the future is going to be terrible. And it's like nobody can ever be happy with these platforms. That's one of the things about Bitcoin is it's always just been unwilling to change unless there's clear consensus around the taproot upgrade, for instance, where it's non-controversial and it takes years in the process. Ordinals being one of these sort of roundabout things that gets invented because of inscriptions existing on Bitcoin, being able to uniquely identify Satoshis. I think our take from like a research perspective was, okay, this is interesting to watch play out in the short term. It felt very much like a mini bubble. And I think you could argue that it was and is because there's not really anything that appears like very sustainable about it at the beginning. That has been the framework for a lot of Bitcoin's growth has been you make small upgrades on the chain and then something down the line changes or somebody figures something out. So like SegWit, for instance, increased transaction malleability that allowed for Lightning to be created. Taproot's creation led to everybody minting these ordinals because you could you know, more efficiently do these transactions and it didn't cost as much. I just think there's different weird upgrades that end up leading to unintended consequences. And it's not good or bad. We'll see what it leads to. But ordinals on the surface, that's not what the network is designed to do. So in the very short term, we thought, okay, this is probably a fad worth watching. And thus far, I would argue that that's been sort of the right take. But It is interesting to see like the community of Bitcoin, which you have certain folks that feel strongly against ever changing anything about the code and the fact that block space should only be used for the monetary purposes that it was designed for. And then others that are more closely aligned with Ethereum and crypto more broadly were actually interested in Bitcoin for something for once. There was something to learn about Bitcoin. There's not much new happening on the base layer of Bitcoin. And this was one of those times where it was like, okay, something interesting was happening and people were talking about it. Maybe there's something here worth looking more into. It's a great point. I think Udi did a great job with Taproot Wizards of just making everyone pay attention to it, did exactly that. I think there's a fascinating piece of if the networks want to gain adoption, it's going to take something like NFTs or DeFi or something that the mainstream, for whatever reason, becomes interested in, and they learn about crypto and blockchain secondarily. There were people early on in my career who were interested in crypto, and they had been interested in digital money for decades. It was something that was interesting to them. That was a very, very small population. But something like Top Shot trading cards opened up millions of people to something they had never seen before. And that's a completely different experience. So shifting gears a little bit, the headlines and light of this year have been pretty wild from legal challenges, court cases, ETFs. So I guess we will start in reverse order. What is your view of a potential ETF, at least for Bitcoin, in 2023? I'll start by saying 
I'm not privy to any information outside of what everybody else publicly listening to this is. So if you kind of go through this year, you have Grayscale Files suit, an APA suit against the SEC. And I think a lot of people listened to the March oral arguments and kind of heard a tone that maybe made them a little bit more positive on the outcome potentially for Grayscale. I guess the wild card is what comes out of the Grayscale lawsuit, which some are speculating we hear in August or September of this year. I don't know better than anybody else does here, but it does seem that the ball is moving forward with surveillance sharing agreements with some of these, the courts we heard on the Ripple case, not that that has anything to do specifically with the ETF filings, but just the industry able to get some sense of clarity from hasn't been Congress legislative thus far. And so it's judiciary and we're hearing from the courts slowly but surely. I had Alex Thorne on from Galaxy and he had some interesting takes on the BlackRock ETF, not necessarily saying good or bad, but just realization that if this is approved and if there is a very large ETF, for people that are interested about price, then there's a bullish argument to be made that there's a really big buyer and a much easier vehicle for people to gain adoption to the asset class. But he started to point out about the centralization control security of suddenly BlackRock has, if it gets approved, we'll just hypothetically say, what's your take on having this merging of traditional finance? Obviously, you're at Fidelity, who has a big presence in crypto, but of having big institutional players inside cryptocurrencies like this. Well, I think for most that are looking at the asset class from an investment perspective, it's inevitable, right? Is the way the industry scales and grows and AUM flows in is that large institutions that represent those thousands of institutional investors that run a lot of the world's capital are going to want to own the asset if it's going to be successful and continue to exist. And so you need institutional service providers. Of course, that's why Fidelity Digital Assets got involved in the space and And Fidelity was interested in it 10 years ago or so. So I think it's more or less inevitable. This gets us to a point where we could bring back up the discussion of Bitcoin being proof of work and Ethereum being proof of stake, right? Because you own a bunch of Bitcoin. There are, of course, security and custody risks around it. But just because one large entity owns a bunch of Bitcoin doesn't mean they have more governance or voting rights over the network. Whereas if there was a spot ETF sometime in the future and those assets are staked, then there is a governance component to those tokens. So I think there is going to be governance implications for a lot of these networks as a result, and that it's worth thinking about what's the impact to a proof of work versus proof of stake network under institutional scaling of the industry. I thought the biggest surprise of the year for me has been regarding XRP. This is moving outside of the Bitcoin ETH world, but into the alternative coins. The view of the market has really been around the security versus token. I think People feel pretty comfortable that Bitcoin is not a security and Ethereum probably is not a security, but everything else, there's been this pretty big cloud over. It's definitely impacted the United States and how companies are starting or where they're forming abroad. Was that case a surprise? And on the institutional side, did that make them think more broadly than just the traditional Bitcoin and Ethereum use cases? On the second question... I guess I haven't seen enough of a response or a reaction as a result of it, specific to within the institutional community, for there to be allocation changes based off of one specific court ruling. But I do think as an industry, and if you look at the response in asset prices, at least directly after the news came out, was it did take a lot of people by surprise, the ruling and the outcome, which, of course, to boil it down simply was the asset in and of itself is not necessarily an investment 
security or an investment contract. I don't know that anybody's making like huge allocation decisions based off of that singular court ruling, but certainly from an industry perspective, it's a positive sign to see, especially that just judges and lawyers are able and willing to wrap their head around the complexity of this space rather than just shove it into a singular mold of existing securities that we already have. Like This is a fundamentally different asset class and it requires nuance to look at the facts and circumstances of each token themselves and whether or not they look to be a security, a commodity or something different. On the institutional side, mentioned it hadn't changed allocations. I'm curious just to dig in a bit more from the people that you interact with or the type of research and the population that is using your team services. How do they think about allocation? Touching back to that macro point, what part of their portfolio do they think about putting Bitcoin in? Is this a gold replacement? Is this a risk-on asset? I've always found it interesting that people will pitch it and sometimes it's a risk-on asset, sometimes it's a risk-off asset. One week's an inflation hedge. It feels like it's always creating a new identity in institutional portfolio management. Yeah. What was the price action last month? And then that will inform the current narrative that allocators have. It's behavioral bias, recency bias, right? If you go back to 2022, what did everybody say? Bitcoin's correlation to the S&P and risk assets was way higher. And it was obviously a painful year of 75% drawdown over the course of peak to trough. And the narrative was, this is similar to leveraged equity exposure, right? It's like triple leveraged NASDAQ exposure. And so a lot of people that like were potentially considering the asset class probably weren't thinking about the asset class after that, right? Our discussion with potential future clients dried up quite a bit during that year. And now, of course, momentum has shifted a little bit. The narrative has shifted. And now it's a little bit more positive at the moment, right? And that's just like the ebbs and flows of the market, of course. But I would say the narrative depends on the investor type. And so, of course, with Bitcoin, it tends to be those that are looking at things from a macro perspective. Maybe they see precious metals and commodities and private real estate as exposure that they have in their portfolio. And they want to own a little bit of Bitcoin because it's a digital scarce asset. We definitely see a lot of that narrative associated with Bitcoin. And then alongside Ethereum, it's more your tech-minded investor. It just makes sense, of course, that that ends up being sort of how it's laid out. But then from like an actual investor perspective, we do an institutional investor survey every single year. I think this will be our fifth year this year. And then we get nice trended data over time. By far, the highest rates of adoption tend to be registered investment advisors, family offices, those that are directly connected to the end client, right? And a lot of times it's the end client saying, I want to get some exposure to the digital asset space. How can you help me? And they end up finding Fidelity or other companies to get that exposure. The larger entities like the pensions, endowments, foundations, sovereign wealth funds, I would argue both through the survey data and the conversations that we have with them are like still on the education journey, maybe further along than they were a few years ago. But allocations from large institutions are pretty sparse, or they'll take venture exposure. I'm of course generalizing, but go through a traditional venture wrapper rather than take direct token exposure because there's all of this added due diligence and explaining to do to your operations teams and all of these other people involved versus investing in a venture or hedge fund-like product in the digital asset space. It's an easier way to explain, hey, we're going to allocate to blockchain or digital assets 
but we're going to do it in a diversified way. And we're not going to have to do the due diligence on the custody and all those operational considerations ourselves. Cliff Astin has a great line of reasoning about this, what he calls volatility laundering, where because they don't mark them as liquid, they're a lot less volatile. Whereas if they put Bitcoin in a portfolio, the volatility will be turned up very quickly. Yeah, their sharp ratios are a lot higher when you only have to mark the liquid assets when they become liquid. Curious about that survey. How has it compared US versus international adoption? The survey is makes a few things very clear. So one thing I sort of mentioned is smaller wealth managers, they're closer to clients. They run more nimble, smaller operations. There's less people making the investment decisions. That tends to be those that are actually making allocations, whether it be actually anecdotally in terms of what I'm seeing on a day-to-day basis when we're talking to people or just the actual survey data. Both of those things tend to be aligned. Through that survey as well, we see clear evidence every single year that you go east to west in terms of rates of adoption, understanding interests in like DeFi and yield opportunities. It's Asia, then Europe, then the United States, US being in last, Asia being furthest up the curve. And that's been consistent across 90% of the categories every single year. And I think it speaks to a few things. One of them is the dollar has been the reserve currency. And so just cryptocurrency in and of itself, I know that not everything is trying to necessarily be a monetary asset per se, but it is introducing this idea of a multi-currency world in Asia, that's more normal to think about like cross-currency trading and exposure to other currencies in the United States. Most people have a bunch of home country bias and have lived in a dollar-centric world. So you never really need to think about a dollar to euro trading pair unless you're traveling to Italy for a week or whatever. And so there's that one end, which is a currency phenomenon. So it's more normalized in other countries. And then the other thing I think that's a driving factor is being first to digital payments and this idea of like digital value. So in China, they had MobiPay or they were the first like introduce these digital wallets. They weren't like blockchain necessarily, but it's just this idea of value being digital. And now, of course, today we have all these Venmo, Zelle, Cash App, all of these different applications that we use that transfer value digitally. So it's become more normalized, but it was normalized first in the East and has since made its way here. And now we have digital payments here, but it's just getting up the curve and being more normalized with the idea of ownership of digital value and multiple currencies existing. And also, of course, like the regulatory environment, there are other reasons, but that's like a lot of like the initial thought in terms of why is Asia so much further ahead of the curve than the United States? One question I get a lot is allocation within a portfolio. I know that there's different investor types, so there isn't going to be a universal answer. But a common question is, how do you think about portfolio weight theory and where cryptocurrency belongs inside a diversified portfolio? It's a tough question. We've written a number of different pieces, some just using historical data. But even with historical data, it's hard because it's a short data set and everybody knows that the returns were incredible before. But then in order to think about the future, you kind of have to have an investment thesis. If you don't have an outlook looking forward on the asset class and like some sort of framework around how large this asset class could get and what the implied returns could be, then you're stuck with either using historical returns or you can't model it. At some point, you have to model the asset 
inside of a portfolio. And that's why I think a lot of people just end up saying one, two, three percent or whatever, 50 basis points, right? Because it's, let's just think about it like it's venture capital, broadly characterizing here, but let's put 1% of the portfolio. If you burn 1% of a portfolio, big whoop, it's 1% and you still have 99% of your portfolio. And hey, if it goes on to 10x, that's meaningful for your portfolio. And that's where I think a lot of people that end up allocating, whereas when you start to model it, you have to really think about where's the asset class going into the future. And a lot of times, the allocators that make those decisions, you have the CFA and the portfolio modeling, you're doing your mean variance optimization. Bitcoin doesn't fit perfectly inside of that unless you're willing to make some pretty aggressive assumptions about it. I liked how succinctly you put how everyone ends up arriving at the 1% to 2% number because they don't have any other number. And if you lose that, they won't be mad at you. The notion that it doesn't have a valuation system, people use historical data for stocks or bonds, does that always just leave it at a severe disadvantage from the institutional allocation side? Or is this just, we have to wait 20 years before people say, okay, now I have a robust data set and I can say this is the annual return or what I want to put on an expected return. I tend to view, like, if you think of something like Bitcoin being a monetary asset, then the way you would think about its value accrual, I think is different than Ethereum. You can almost look at Ethereum as being a business that sells block space. It's, of course, not a business. It's a decentralized platform. But the same theory, right? It has cash flows that come from fees being paid. And it has an automated share buyback effectively through the burn portion of those fees. And you could, and we've done this, we actually have an ETH investment thesis piece that we're going to put out in the next month or two. You could theoretically create a discounted cash flow model. Tons of assumptions. People still do that on the equity side with startup equity. We have no idea what it's going to look like two years from now on a lot of these companies. But in theory, to get to a valuation perspective, you kind of have to have an outlook on it or you have to have a multiple associated with its current cash flows or revenue or whatever it is. You can do that with Ethereum and some of these other platforms. It's just highly speculative. But of course, that's why the market cap is where it is relative to, in theory, what it could be in the future if you do have a bunch of commerce taking place on top of these platforms and they are successful. And then with Bitcoin, it's a lot different because it looks more like gold. And so it should have a relationship to some of these macro variables, which it kind of appears to do, or it's trying to be a money. And so we can think of it as it has this inelastic supply curve that isn't responsive to demand. So what's happening to the demand curve? We've written a piece called Valuing Bitcoin. And we think about the fact that Bitcoin's adoption curve looks similar to prior historical internet adoption curves, cell phone adoption curves. Urian had written about this a couple of years ago, a couple of other people as well. I think Ralph Powell wrote about it. And we sort of resurfaced some of that research and thought about, well, if that adoption curve continues into the future, you can start to derive where this asset might go into the future. It's just all of that takes a lot of nuance. A lot of people just either haven't dug deep enough into the asset class and applied all of that nuance to it, or the career risk involved means they're unwilling to take those risks to say, hey, just because Bitcoin doesn't have a cash flow doesn't mean it's not valuable or we can't think about valuing it. And so if you're not able to take those steps, then you're probably not able to model the asset and think about what it could look like in a portfolio. Yeah. I mean, on the other hand, I come from a place where when things are harder to model and harder to value, there's usually great places to look for superior investment returns. I agree completely. Like, Where's the best 
place to be looking for potential investment opportunities where nobody else wants to do the homework or where everybody throws the baby out with the bathwater. Bitcoin exists, Dogecoin exists, Ethereum exists. They could just keep making different copies of these and then they just throw it all out the window and think it's all the same thing. When in reality, there's a ton of nuance here and there are all sorts of different use cases that are emerging. Certainly a bunch of them are going to fail, but it doesn't mean all of them are going to fail. And if a lot of people are taking that attitude where they just say, I don't want to invest in any of this or have anything to do with it. To me, that means there's probably a bunch of potential opportunity for the person that's willing to roll their sleeves up and do the homework. What are some of the areas that you're seeing that are of interest to you that are exciting that are keeping your attention? Bitcoin will always be coin. It's not like there's tons of new things to talk about. And I don't mean that in an offensive way. That is the value prop by its very nature. But if we look on Ethereum, I think one of the things moving forward that will be interesting to watch is the potential for real world assets to make their way on chain. Okay, we built all of this stuff in DeFi. Great. But can we use it with things that aren't necessarily just speculative tokens that all have the same exact correlation to one another? Right? Could we introduce real-world assets on-chain with some sort of regulatory clarity in the future? Hopefully not too far away, but ultimately we'll see. Wouldn't that enable a whole new set of investors to be able to interact with these protocols and a whole heaping pile of value to be able to make its way on-chain to be used on top of these protocols? That, to me, is certainly something worth watching. It's not happening in any major way at the moment. You obviously have stuff with Maker, and then there's gardens of capital where you can get access to like a money market-like fund if you're KYC AML'd on-chain. Okay, that's a start, but we probably need some more regulatory clarity to really bring assets on-chain. I think that's interesting. And then I think the other thing that's most interesting to me is we still have no idea what this is going to look like five and 10 years from now. You have Ethereum trying to scale itself with L2s at the same time as you have Cosmos and app chains trying to push forward with separate visions. And can they coexist or will one subsume the other in the long run? I don't necessarily know the answers. There's tons of people that are still building that are still here. It seems like Ethereum got through its transition to proof of stake. Now it's about trying to make the platform more usable and scale it from millions of people to billions of people across the globe. And who's going to do that? And who's going to like win that race and be able to create the next wave of use cases? We had DeFi, we had NFTs. How do we like scale it into something more sustainable as we move forward? I don't necessarily have all the answers. Obviously, the underlying tech is super compelling. And as the regulatory environment evolves and the tech continues to scale and be better, I don't know. I'm just, I'm really excited to see what we end up creating in this space over the next like five and 10 years. You kind of just set yourself up the perfect ending question we close out with is what are you most excited to see developed or has your attention over the next six months? And then what are you most excited to see built over the next six years? Over the next six months, I guess. I would answer that with whether or not Ethereum can push through this EIP 4844. So the vision of Ethereum was originally, let's transition to proof of stake. We have the beacon chain and then we'll shard the beacon chain into like 64 separate pieces. That vision has gone away. The vision that has been pushed forward now is we're going to scale through layer twos. 
And this is how we're going to make transactions more cheap. And this is how you know, billions of people are going to be able to interact with Ethereum through these roll-up chains that operate independently themselves, but derive security from the base layer of Ethereum and transactions get you know, rolled up into Ethereum. We have an upgrade coming and I'm just interested to see like the development timeline on Ethereum has been pretty impressive when you have the merge and then Shanghai six months after it, which was April of this year. Will we see this Cancun, this next upgrade before the end of this year or into early next year? I'd be pretty impressed to see the timeline of the second largest project in crypto, arguably the most complex project in crypto at its scale, continuing to sort of hit all of these markers as we move forward. Now it's a proof of stake asset. It can become more scalable and more usable. I mean, that's super interesting and compelling from my perspective, which admittedly, like if you went back a year or two, I was pretty skeptical going into the merge. How are you going to change your entire consensus mechanism in the flip of a button? And it ended up working out. Give credit where credit is due. And so I want to see if that execution continues into the future. And then what about six years? I kind of mentioned the whole thing of real world assets finding their way on chain. Would love to see regulatory clarity and more real world use cases being able to be enabled. And I think those two things go hand in hand. So like right now, I get asked a lot around use cases. Bitcoin has the clear use case that it created. And then you could argue others have a similar use case of censorship resistant payments and some element of scarcity. You could argue around Ethereum. Bitcoin created that. That's one clear use case. Okay, we have that. What about the rest of crypto? A lot of them are inherently very speculative. We're trading tokens back and forth on DeFi protocols. Okay, cool. But like at some point, if you want institutional allocators to allocate to the space, you have to be doing this with meaningful assets. And so regulatory clarity would be a huge piece to allow us to bring the interaction of contract and smart contract law. Code is law on these platforms. And in the real world, it's judges and it's legal laws of the land that will determine that that real world asset that got put on that chain is actually legally the person who owns those private keys. I would argue, do we have all of that clarity? Not enough to put all of these assets on chain yet, right? Like I wouldn't want to put the deed to my house on Ethereum or something like that, right? Because you don't have those assurances, but like it makes sense that we would get there someday. And so getting regulatory clarity over the next, you know, call it six years, I think is a huge key. What does that mean for institutional adoption, for being able to point to real world use cases on these chains? That's what I'm excited for. Awesome. Jack, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you for doing it. Thanks, Eric. To find more episodes of Breakdowns or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 